Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. Hey, when you're done listening to this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content. Our app is actually the best place to keep up with everything going on at Hope. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Well, I was a junior in college uh, when I worked at a summer camp, and uh, there were two counselors there that year that tracked me down the very first week because they had some really, really big questions about the Bible and about Christianity. Uh, They were freshmen at UNCC at Carolina, and uh, there was and still is a professor there named Dr. Bart Ehrman who teaches a class on the Bible that many students have taken. Maybe some of you in this room right now have taken that class. And uh, so they went through that class and they were just thrown for a loop and were really distraught. And they were at a place where they were really doubting if they could believe the Bible or even remain being Christians anymore. And so I asked them why and they kind of explained what they went through in that class. And it's the first time I had been exposed to ideas like this before. But basically, uh, Dr. Ehrman was teaching that because the Bible had been translated and copied and then translated and then copied and then translated and copied over the course of 2000 years, there were so many additions to it and so many subtractions to it and so many mistakes in it that the Bible that you currently hold in your hands is nowhere near what the apostles originally wrote. And so we can't trust that Jesus ever actually claimed to be the Messiah or the Son of God. Uh, We can't trust the claims that the Bible makes about the afterlife, about sin. We can't trust any of it. All of those ideas might have just been added uh, as the Bible was being written. If you're new to the Bible and don't know this, we call it one book, but it's not. It's 66 different books. And the Old Testament kind of comes to us through an oral tradition. It was passed on by word of mouth, generation after generation after generation, until it could be written down. Uh, The New Testament was handwritten. We'll talk about this. And uh, so when John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Paul, or Peter sat down and wrote a piece of the Bible, they would handwrite it and then say, hey, make 10 copies of this so we can send it to the churches. And so someone would sit down and letter by letter, hand copy those letters, and they'd send it to a church. Once it got to a church, they'd hand copy that. So obviously there were some mistakes when we were copying that book, but Dr. Ehrman says that there were so many that we have no idea what the original was even like. It's like a game of telephone. You guys remember that playing it in elementary school where you come up with a funny sentence and you whisper it to someone and then they take what they think you, they heard you say and whisper it to the next person and pass it along to the next person and pass it along to the next person until it gets 20 people down the line and they say, hey, what did you think you heard? And it's nowhere near what the original sentence was or in my case, it usually had like a cuss word in it and I would get in trouble from the teacher. But they say that's what the Bible is like. And so these guys were literally distraught and didn't know what to think. And uh, that led me to seek out an answer to that question. Um, And that's the question that many of you submitted in different ways over the past few weeks. And that's the question that I want to try to answer this weekend. Is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible that we have today anywhere close to what the original authors wrote or has it been lost over time? 
Now, this is not like, are there places in the Bible that seemingly disagree with one another? We're not talking about that. That's a different sermon. This is not like, hey, how did those miracles really work? Like did Jonah really spend three days in the belly of a great fish? I talked about that the first sermon of this year. You can go back and listen to that. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about mainly, has it been translated so many times that we have lost the original meaning? And the reason we're doing this is because you guys sent this question in. If you're just joining with us, uh, we asked our congregation on social media and at our services to send in any of the burning questions they have or doubts that they have or that they come across in their daily lives. So if you're just joining with us the first time and you're, you're, you're kind of kicking the tires and you say, hey, I got some big doubts and I got some big questions. I wonder if this would be a comfortable place. Well, all these doubts and questions came from our congregation. So welcome to the club. You're, 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 you're good here. Uh, this should be a free space where we can admit the doubts that we have, where we don't have to check our brains at the door, where we can discuss discuss this stuff as a congregation. But uh, I get this question. Like I have devoted my life to really studying and learning about the Bible. I've built my life and my marriage and the way that I parent on the wisdom and the truth found in this book. Like all of my hopes and my dreams and my fears and my worries and my prayers for my family and for myself and for this church, they're wrapped up in the words of life that I, that I think this is, is in this book. So if I were to find out that Jesus never said the stuff that he said, or, or I can't trust that, like that would remove the foundation that I built my life on. Like where else would I go? Is my whole life built on a lie? And so that's the question that we're gonna address this week. And this, this idea was actually pretty popular in the mid 1800s in academia. And it kind of made its way to popular culture in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, in the 80s, there was this thing called the Jesus Seminar. I don't know how many of you remember that, but it was made up of 50 Bible experts. I'll put quotes around that. And 100 non-experts or lay people. And what they did is they got together and they read through the four gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they tried to figure out if, if what Jesus Jesus said or what he did as recorded in the Bible was historical. If it really happened or it didn't, so they would vote on it. They would throw a red bead in a jar if Jesus really did say that. They'd throw a pink bead if maybe the concept is okay, but it's not the exact same wording or a gray or a black bead if no, Jesus never said that. Well, at the end of a few months, they came to the conclusion that only 18% of the gospels was historical and the rest was made up later. Only one verse in the Bible of John happened, and it's not even a good verse. It's like someone's like, what's up, Jesus? And he's like, what's up? And that's it. They think that really happened. Um, then the Da Vinci Code came out in 2003, and it was a bestseller, and it was turned into a movie. It's written by Dan Brown. Well, in that book, one of the characters states, the Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Now, the, the Jesus Seminar has kind of been discredited over the years. Uh, when one of your uh, New Testament scholars is a Hollywood producer that produced striptease uh, starring Demi Moore, you're like, I don't know if I can trust what you say about the Bible. And uh, the Da Vinci Code author came out and said, hey guys, this is fiction. It's not really based on academic research, but Dr. Bar Ehrman is still around and he is still quite famous and he is pushing this idea. And he has a story that news outlets and late night shows really, really love because he was a conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christian. But when he really dove into how the Bible was formed throughout the past 2,000 years, he lost his faith. 
And so he's been on the Colbert Report. He's been uh, on The Daily Show when Jon Stewart used to be the host. And uh, he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus that became an international bestseller. And in it, he states, not only do we not have the original manuscripts of the New Testament, but we don't even have the first copies of the originals or the copies of the copies or the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. So is this true? Is it true that the Bible that we have now is not the Bible that they wrote back then? Well, that's what I want to answer today. And it is going to be a very different sermon, all right? You guys just need to buckle in. Uh, We're going to have a lot of content. Basically, I'm going to geek out for the next 30 minutes, but I am geeking out so you don't have to later because in a few years, a neighbor is going to say, hey, I read the Da Vinci Code. I can't believe that you would trust in something as silly as the Bible. And you're like, remember that time Chase geeked out? Well, that sermon's online. And so I can send that as a resource to them. So I'm getting most of this content um, from uh, a few talks by Dr. Daniel Wallace. He actually wrote the Greek textbook that three quarters of the seminaries around the country use. And uh, he is a world premier textual critic, which means he's devoted his life to studying the New Testament manuscripts. So we're gonna look at papyrus. We're gonna be talking about codexes. We're gonna be talking about variants. You guys ready? You excited? All right, if your neighbor falls asleep, just nudge him. It'll be worth it. So the first really, really important question we have to answer is, do we have any of the original copies of the New Testament manuscripts? Do we have the ones in Mark's handwriting or in Paul's handwriting? And the answer is no. The next five minutes are gonna scare some people. Just stay there, don't leave, you wanna hang around. Um, There are 27 documents or letters that make up the New Testament. All 27 of the originals had disintegrated uh, by around the end of the second century because they are written on something that we call papyrus, not the font, like an avatar, or that's on every single landscaping truck you've ever seen. Not that. Uh, Papyrus is a paper made out of grass and reed, and it holds up okay in super, super dry environments, uh, but it tends to disintegrate over time in any other environment. So we don't have the originals, but we do have copies. So as the the copies that we do have, do they all agree? Are they all the same? Again, this is going to be scary. Hang with me. The answer is no. There are differences to the copies that we have of the New Testament. In fact, no two manuscripts that we have are exactly the same. So this is why we have the field of textual criticism where you compare one copy of the New Testament with every other copy in existence. So textual critics devote their lives to studying these differences or what we call variants. I think their technical term is huge dorks, but I am thankful for them uh, because a variant is really any place uh, in two documents where they disagree. So it can be word order. Um, It can be spelling differences. It can be an addition of a word or a missing word. I'll give you an example. In Romans 8.1, many of you probably know this verse. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, we know a few hundred years after that, some scribes heard that and were like, no condemnation? Like zero? Won't people read that and be like, man, I like to commit sin and he likes to forgive it. We're gonna get along just great. Like, won't that lead to a sinful sort of life? So they added Uh, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but who do walk according to the spirit. That was added to the Bible much later. It's actually still in the King James Version. Um, uh, But that would be an example of a variant. We know that that was not in the original manuscripts. So of the two oldest New Testament manuscripts that we have, the two oldest that we have our, our, our hands on that are complete New Testament, there are differences between them. 
there are six to 10 differences per chapter to be exact. Now there's 260 chapters in the New Testament. So that's about 2,000 differences just in those two copies alone. Now, if you add a third, you get more. You add a fourth copy, you get more. You add a hundredth, you get, you add a 5,000th and you get more and more variants. Well, how many variants do we have? Well, in the New Testament, there's about 140,000 words. And in all the manuscripts that we found so far, we found 400,000 variants or discrepancies. So there's more variants than there are words. 2.5 differences per word to be exact. Now that sounds crazy. That sounds scary, doesn't it? That sounds like we can't trust the New Testament at all. And Bart Ehrman has made a sizable fortune just saying that sentence. There's more variants than there are words. And the late night show host, that's crazy. And they hold up his book and people flock to it and they buy it and they completely write the Bible off as unreliable. But let's dig into this a little bit more, okay? The number of variants we have is so high because the number of copies we have of the New Testament is so incredibly freakishly high. See, if you just have one copy, there's no variance. There's no differences, right? But you add a second, you get differences. You add a third, a fourth, a fifth, a tenth. Well, when it comes to the amount of copies we have of the New Testament, we have what scholars would call an embarrassment of riches. Uh, we have way more copies of the Bible than any other ancient author like Plato, Aristotle, Josephus, by far. Well, how many do we have? We have 5,389 manuscripts of the New Testament. That's a huge number. And they're not just like little fragments, like little corners of the page from Revelation. The average length is 459 pages long. Uh, Dr. Daniel Wallace's wife actually spent a whole summer counting how many pages of the New Testament do we have. If you want to know, there's 2.6 million pages of the New Testament, okay? And that is just in Greek. That's just in the language that was written in. When Latin became the popular language underneath Rome, we have 10,000 copies of it there. We have five to 10,000 copies in other languages. So before the printing press was even invented, we have 20 to 25,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament. I told you I'm geeking out. You guys lean in, all right? Don't zone out. Now, if all of those copies were just to disappear overnight, like God just like snapped his fingers and they all went up in flame, that's okay because we have writings of, of people that we call the church fathers, the very first pastors or the very first preachers. And guess what they did? They wrote books and they wrote letters and they wrote sermons. And guess what they did in those writings? They quoted the New Testament a lot. From those documents alone, we have 1 million quotations of the New Testament, which means if we lost all the manuscripts, we could reproduce the New Testament hundreds of times over. Now let's compare that with some other ancient sources. You guys heard of Plato? Yeah, Aristotle. You guys remember take, uh, learning about the history of Greece and Rome? Yeah, raise your hand, a few of you. You guys need to go to school, yeah. Um, well, the facts that we assumed happened in history are based on ancient authors, manuscripts from ancient authors. Well, what's the average amount of documents that we have from those ancient authors? At most, 20 copies, 20 copies. And those copies are from 700 to 1800 years after the, the events occurred. So stack up all the evidence that we have that Alexander the Great even existed, four feet high. I'm not that tall, four feet high. 
stack up all the New Testament documents, how tall you think it would be? Over a mile. It'd be 6,600 feet. And our oldest manuscripts aren't anywhere near between 700 and 1,800 years after the incident. I actually want to show you one of our most important manuscripts. It's called P52 or Papyrus 52. You can throw it up on the screen. It's not every weekend we put papyrus on the screen. You guys are excited, right? You can go ahead and take pictures. I want to show off how cool our church is. We put papyrus on the screen. That's cool. Uh, let me give you some context of why this is so important. In the mid-1800s, there was a German professor named F.C. Bauer. He was kind of the leading expert on the book of John. Now, how many of you have read like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Jason actually preached out of John last weekend. Yeah, John, just by reading it, you realize it's different. It's got some poetic language. He talks about things that the other authors don't talk about. And because it's so different, this German guy said, you know what? There's no way the book of John was written by John. In fact, it was probably written after 160 AD and it was written by the second or third generation of John's followers. So they had made up this religion. They really needed Jesus to say that he was the son of God and to kind of put, put in the Bible that he was raised from the dead. So they made up the whole book of John, attributed it to the disciple and then told people that John really wrote that. And that's what people believe for about 90 years, that John was written after 160 AD. Well, uh, and 90 years later, C.H. Roberts was at a library in um, England and he came across P52. And it was in a storage area and he realized that it's about the size of a credit card. It was written on both sides uh, and it was written in Greek, which means it's very, very old and it's probably Christian because Christians have always been thrifty and we were the only ones that wrote on the back of papyrus. That's for real. And so he translated and realized, oh my goodness, this is out of the gospel of John. It's seven lines from John 18 to be exact. So he borrowed that little credit card and sent it around to the world's leading, I can never say this word, papyrologist. I don't know, hip hop anonymous, who knows, um, to see what they thought. And each one said, okay, you want me to date this thing? There's no way this thing is older than 150 AD. They said it's probably written around 90 AD. Jump back with me. Guess what was happening in 90 AD? There was this disciple named John walking around writing books of the Bible. And so P52 could have been copied from John's original gospel while the ink was still wet. And so 90 years of German theology that said Jesus never claimed to be divine, that was just invented 200 years after his death. That just went down the drain. In fact, I want to read from another papyrus from you. It's P66. You can put it up there. It's another old one. It just has the first chapter of John. Let's read this together, shall we? Um, <laughs> you guys remember your Greek lessons? Even if you do, it's all in caps and there's no spaces. So it's really, really hard. But that's okay because it's the exact same words you have in your Bible today where it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we know Jesus claimed to be God. He proved it by his resurrection. And we have historical documents that show that. So we don't have the originals. Those have disintegrated, but we do have copies of the originals. There's no doubt in that. And so every time we get a group of copies, we, smart people get together and say, hey, do we need to adjust the English uh, version of this Bible a little bit? And they do. 
Then they get some more copies and they adjust the English to be a little bit more clear, a little bit more like the original probably was. And so um, in the past 150 years, we found most of the copies that we have of the New Testament. And during that time, not one of those documents disagrees with your English Bible that you hold in your hand in any major way. Let me put it this way. The King James Version was written in 1611. It was based on seven manuscripts the oldest they had was from the 11th century. The Bible that you hold in your hand today is based on 5,800 manuscripts. And the earliest is 90 AD when the eyewitnesses were still walking around. So this is not a game of telephone. It's the exact opposite. We're getting more and more manuscripts and they agree more and more with the Bible that you hold in your hands. Listen, the message is getting clearer. It's not getting more confusing. See that? So that's the amount of variance that we have. Well, what about the quality of variance? Like are the discrepancies, are they big deals? Well, there's different categories. I told you we're going to geek out. Wake back up. There we go. Some of you are like, yes, you're the ones who watch PBS, right? The other people are like, when's football come back, please? Um, <laughs> so there's different ways that you can rank the variance. Uh, they can be meaningful, like, oh my goodness, this would dramatically change the meaning of this verse but not viable, like they probably weren't in the original. I'll give you an example. In 1 Thessalonians 2.7, Paul says, hey, when we were hanging out with you, Thessalonians, he either says we became gentle among you or we became as little children among you. And we're not exactly sure which one it is because it's tricky. Because opioi, everyone say opioi, good job, uh, means gentle and napioi, everyone say napioi, it means uh, little children. Now, it's hard because we became, that verb became, it ends with an N. It's agonathon. So listen, it's either agonathonopioi or agonathonopioi. See, it's kind of tricky. But we found a, a, a manuscript in the 14th century that says agonathon hippioi. We became like horses among you. Now that changes the meaning of the text, doesn't it? But that was probably not in the original. That's an example of a scribe going to the racetrack and then drinking while he's copying the Bible, okay? So a lot of them are meaningful, but they're not viable. So a lot of the variants we have are, are meaningful, but not viable. But some are viable. Some might have been in the actual New Testament. So of those that are viable, a lot of them can't be translated. And in fact, uh, we're going to put a pie chart up here. 70% of the variants we have are spelling differences. Of the 400,000, 70% are spelling differences, not mistakes. Like we spell color, C-O-L-O-R here in the States. We're in Great Britain. They spell it C-O-L-O-U-R, right? Uh, in the Greek, John can be spelled with one N or two Ns. It's not wrong. It's just a matter of preference. That's 70% of the variants that we have. The rest are non-translatable. Here's what I mean. Uh, in the Greek, uh, you can put the definite article, the, you can actually write that in the Greek or you can leave it out. It doesn't matter. You just kind of know because of these special things about the word. Uh, the word order can also change a whole lot. In English, I can say this sentence, John loves Mary. And you know that John's the one doing the loving and Mary is the one experiencing that love because the word order is important. In Greek, you can, you can scramble all those words around and it will always mean John loves Mary in English because the Greek has these different word endings. So let me just give you an example of, of this. In the Greek, you can spell John with one or two ends. Uh, you can add the definite article, the word the. You can change the word order and it always means John, love Mary, John loves Mary. 
So in a manuscript, it can say, John loves Mary. The John loves Mary. The John loves the Mary. The Mary that John loves. Mary that John loves. The Mary that the John loves. There's 96 different ways that you can write that in the Greek, and it's going to mean the same thing in English. Then you can add conjunctions, which we don't translate. There's 500 different ways that you can write that one sentence. And then if you add in the different words for love, there's 1,200 options for writing a sentence in Greek that will always say, John loves Mary. So if you add up the spelling differences and you add up the non-translatable differences, how many of those 400,000 variants are those? It's more than 99%. So most variants aren't viable, don't have a good chance of being authentic. Almost all of them don't affect the English translation whatsoever. But how many variants are there that might have been in the New Testament original that do affect the meaning, that change the meaning of a certain verse? Well, it's less than 1%. It's actually less than one quarter of 1%. But Bart Ehrman doesn't say that publicly. Can I give you two of our biggest problems that we're really struggling with as textual critics? Here's one, Mark 9, 29. He sends the, Jesus sends the disciples out and says, you need to cast out demons, you need to heal. Well, they come back and say, hey, we tried to cast this demon out and it didn't work. So Jesus either says, this kind only comes out by prayer, period, or he may have said this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. The earliest manuscripts don't have the word fasting. So we don't know which one it is. And that's a really big deal. There's conferences devoted to that one verse. If you, at your next exorcism, I would just encourage you to fast just to be sure, right? But that, that's a big deal. Here's another one. This is gonna throw some of y'all for a loop. In Revelation 13, 18, it says the, there's this beast that comes on earth and the number of the beast is what? 666. We all know that. It's on heavy metal album covers. It's on like, it's the whole plot of some Christian fiction books, right? We all know it's 666. But uh, in uh, 1843, a German scholar found a manuscript, our most important manuscript on Revelation. And guess what it says? The number of the beast is not 666, it's 616. <gasps> Well, it's just one time, so we discounted it. But then in 1998, we found another manuscript. And guess what it said? The number of the beast is not 666. It says it's 616 as well. So now we don't know. All those heavy metal t-shirts could be wrong, right? Whole swaths of Christian fiction, like their, their plot thrown off. And uh, for textual critics, this is a huge problem. But listen, there is no Bible college, there's no seminary, there's no theological institution and there's no church that says in their belief statement, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of Mary, a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried on the third day, rose again. And we believe the number of the beast is 666, not 616. It might be important, but it's not that important. In fact, as you look back at all the changes that have been made to the text over the years, that's really as dramatic as it gets. So this story of this thing has been translated over and over and over. And what we have today is wildly different from the original. It's just not true. And again, that's not something Bart Ehrman says in public because it doesn't sell books. But squeezed into the appendix of the paperback version of misquoting Jesus is a dictation of an interview where he states word for word, essential Christian belief is not affected 
by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So when asked, do any of these variants change any of our deeply held beliefs in any way? The answer is no. It's no. Well, that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? <laughs> How much time we got? No, this is easy. Uh, for the longest time, uh, our Old Testament was based off of three codexes. One of them is called the Masoretic. There's two others. And uh, that's what we've been relying on for hundreds and hundreds of years. The earliest one, um, these went all the way back to 900 A.D., so for a long time, we had older copies of New Testament manuscripts than we did of Old Testament. Well, one day, around the Dead Sea in the, um, what's the date here? Uh, 1940s, there was this little kid who was a Bedouin goat herder. And uh, he was herding his goats around these caves in the Dead Sea, and he was throwing rocks into the caves above him. Well, one day he threw a rock, and instead of throwing the rock and hearing a thud, he threw the rock and he heard a crash, like pottery smashing. So he took his goats to where they were going. He went back to that cave the next day and looked in. And lo and behold, there were all these pots filled with all these old scrolls. And so he's like, sweet, I can get some money from this. So he took a scroll out and tried to sell it. He was actually successful. Uh, but expert finally got involved. And it turns out that, that that scroll was the scroll of Isaiah. And so experts flocked to this cave in the Dead Sea. And what they figured out is that inside these pots was every single book of the Old Testament except for Esther. And they were the best preserved copies we ever had because it's the only place they would survive, the driest place on earth, the Dead Sea. And uh, they would conservatively date these scrolls, listen, to 100 B.C., a thousand years older than the oldest documents that we have. So you want to test the telephone hypothesis? Now is the chance. I mean, these are a thousand years different, nothing in between. Let's see what happens. So they used x-ray technology to read these things without disintegrating them. I got to see them in Charlotte in college. They did a whole tour of the world and I geeked out hard. But uh, the first scroll the, the little kid found was a scroll of Isaiah. Our Laird Harris was a Hebrew expert and he was asked to compare it to the copies uh, that we had been using, our English version of the Old Testament. And this is what he wrote. A comparison of Isaiah 53 shows that only 17 letters differ from the Masoretic text. Ten of these were mere differences in spelling like our honor and the English honor, H-O-N-O-U-R. And they produced no change in the meaning at all. Four more are very minor uh, differences, such as the presence of a conjunction, like the word and, which are stylistic rather than substantive. And the other three letters are the Hebrew word for light. And this word was added to the text by someone after they shall see in verse 11. They shall see light. So out of the 166 words in this chapter, only this one word is really in question, and it does not at all change the meaning of the passage. And we're told by biblical scholars that this is typical of the whole manuscript. I don't think this is an accident. That somehow, some way, an ancient people copied down every single book of the Old Testament except for Esther. And it was stored in the only place that it could survive. And we found it. A thousand years older than any other scroll we ever had. And we came to the realization that, that, that Isaiah 53, which that guy just talked about, you could have read Isaiah 53 in the same words in your English Bible a hundred years before Jesus burst onto the scene where it says, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one for whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on the iniquity of us all. There is no book in human history like the book that you hold in your hands or you have on your phone. No book that has as many copies as it does and all the languages that it does. No book that goes as far back into history as this book and agrees with so much of the copies that we have as this book. This book has been supernaturally, providentially taken care of and preserved like nothing else. And I love how Ben Stewart, a pastor, puts it. The preservation was meant for invitation. It wasn't so we could save a book and so the words of this book could save you so that you would know that you have a loving, graceful, merciful, heavenly father who created you. And in his image, he did that. So you have dignity and you have worth. But because of sin, you are separated from him and you're without hope and you're facing eternity of separation. But out of his great, great love and mercy 2,000 years ago, he sent his son to take on human flesh. And people saw him and interacted with him and wrote books about him and recorded his words. And he died the death that we should have died, that you should have died, rose from the grave three days later, and now stands ready to offer you not just forgiveness, but a relationship with your heavenly father and transformation and a living hope for the future. And we know that because of this book. Now, I may not have convinced you that Jesus is the son of God. And if you're still on the fence, that's fine. Just come back next week. We talk about Jesus, oh, I don't know, like every single week. So uh, you'll have your questions answered. But hopefully I've um, cautioned you from buying into the lie that you can't know what he's like, or you don't know the words that he said because you do, because God preserved them in this book. Now we don't worship this book, but through it, we're drawn into worship the one that it points, right? Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your supernatural care of this book. <laughs> you just don't give up on us. What can be known about you, we could just see from creation. That's what talk about next week, we could, we could just sense in our heart your fingerprint, but you wanted us to have such a clear picture and knowledge of who you were that you wrote it down and you preserved it. So Father, we are thankful. <laughs> and we're in awe that you pursue us. We're in awe that you faithfully chase after us. We're just in awe of your goodness and your gratefulness. Thank you for keeping a light burning in the dark century after century after century so that we could see your face. And it's in the beautiful name of him that we pray and we respond and worship online and across all of our campuses. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. 
To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.